Well, this morning we come to the last message of what has become really a three-part series of this very well-known portion of Scripture. It's a series that we began on Psalm 42 and 43, but we combined it as if it's one psalm in the original because we were going to have evidences to the fact that that's exactly what we have here. This is a psalm in itself that is a wealth of wisdom and insight, and so it's taken us three fold series messages to complete even today, I pray, what I have titled a prayer to the God of my life, a prayer to the God of my life, part three. And what has led us to understand that these two psalms are largely to be seen as one is in how this repeating expression shows up three times in these two psalms. If you're there in Psalm 42, you'll see in verse 5 and then in verse 11, and then also in Psalm 43, verse 5 again, the same echoing sentiment of the psalmist, which is, "'Why are you in despair, O my soul?' And why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise him for the salvation of his presence. Not only does this repeating phrase become the internal evidence for the originality of Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 as being one psalm, but it also is the repeating verse that has been the main idea for us as expressed by both of these psalms. Namely, that when my soul is in despair, when I am disturbed within me, I must remind myself of those things that I am certain about, about God and theology and salvation. I must actively, volitionally, intentionally allow myself to shake off the pain and the fear and the depression and preach to myself the truth that I know to be true to the quiet and the Silence of the lies that sometimes penetrate my ears. In a nutshell, this is the main theme of these wonderful psalms. Though there is much, much to be revealed here, that main idea is very important for us. The believer must never allow the voice of the enemy to speak louder than the voice of the Spirit. We as believers, both then and now, must be in constant position of readiness to fight for the battle of our minds while struggling in this fallen world. And so talking to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves is the key instruction that we're called here to embrace that we are to preach the truth to our souls every point in our despair and in our depression and not listen to the whispers of lies that compete for our attention. So it's very, very simple, but it's very, very vital that we're going to see in these two-for-one psalms. Now, if you were with us before, then you know that here in Psalm 42 and 43, we have what are called the three areas of remembrance Uh, that we can preach to ourselves to combat spiritual depression. Three areas of remembrance that the psalmist gives us to draw us out of despair and doubt. And you're going to see how each one of these points, ironically, actually is connected to joy and how that joy is how we combat this despair. And you're going to see them up front. The three thoughts to remember are, then we're going to go through them in detail. Number one, just remember the joy of public devotion to God. We're going to see that in verses one through five. Uh, Remember the joy of private dependence upon God, and we're going to see that in verses 6 through 11 in Psalm 42. And then lastly, remember the joy of personal delight in God, and we'll see that in Psalm 43, 
verses 1 through 5. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to finish up our time here so that you can see all that's been prepared for us in this last message. But before I do so, let me just review a very little bit of what we spoke of last time we met. So the first way that you can preach to yourself, a way to escape spiritual depression, the first point to remember that the psalmist gives us is that, number one, remember the joy of public devotion to God. And we're going to see this in verses 1 through 5. Let me read. I'll begin with the superscription. For the choir director, a mascal of the sons of Korah, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the sound of a shout of joy and thanksgiving and multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise Him for the salvation of His presence." Again, we notice here, right off the beginning from verse 5, comes that refrain, that same refrain that I've already refrained to, or spoken of that's going to be echoed again at the end of Psalm 42 and at the end of Psalm 43. And as I've said, this refrain is really the main theme of the entire song. Namely, that we have to stop listening to our soul's despair. We have to stop listening to the groanings and preach to ourselves instead exactly what it is that is the truth and hope that we have in God. This is the point that both Psalms are trying to make. So let's begin in verse 4 here, just as review. And please notice that the psalmist here is recalling his past participation in his public devotion to God in the sanctuary of the tabernacle as a way to get his soul to wake up to the fact that there is no reason for despair. And the way that he shook himself out of his spiritual depression, the way he kind of preached to himself and prodded himself and and gave himself a good wake-up call and shout was to recall the memory from his past when he led the procession of the people of God to the house of God where there was joy and there was thanksgiving and blessing and festival. He says in verse 4, these things, what things are he talk, is he talking about? The things I am about to recall, I remember and I pour out in my soul within me. In other words, from the very beginning, he's saying what I'm trying to tell you is what I recall to my soul, these are the things that I pour out within my own soul over and over again to take away despair. What are those things when, he says, I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. So this is the first remembrance. This is the first act, the first joy that he calls to mind. The first message that we are to preach to ourselves is how I participated in the joy of public worship. Now that makes total sense to us if you listen to me as I was reading the very beginning of this superscription because the very beginning of the psalm says, for the choir director, a mascal for the sons of Korah, 
Because the sons of Korah, as we learned last time, were singers. They were musical members of the priesthood. And because of that, they were devoted believers who had an active role in the worship of God in ancient Israel, specifically to sing. And the writer here is saying, I was the leader of that procession. This was his life. This was the way that he led the people of God as they walked slowly, step by step, into Jerusalem, into the house of God, physically, emotionally erupting in joy and thanksgiving as they did. It was a time, as he says, a festival, a ritualistic merriment with an abundant crowd making noise and roaring because they were anticipating the worship of God together. So, It was this active worship, this active participation in public worship that those times when he was with the people of God where they strive together to be at the same place at the same time as we are today to delight in the presence of God, that held his soul intact. His presence with the people of God and his participation in the worship with them created joy. And that joy was in his heart and he had this longing to never let that go, and to escape the present circumstances that he found himself in so that he had that memory to sustain him. He preached to himself that message. And if you'd like a more in-depth look at that verse, uh, please review the message from last week because we went into a very deep, uh, seated kind of look at each one of the aspects of those verses. But I want to move on to the second way so that we can cover the rest of these psalms this morning. The second way that you can preach to yourself to get out of a spiritual depression, a spiritual despondency. The second point to remember that the psalmist gives us to drive us out of despair and depression is not only are we to, number one, remember the joy of public devotion to God, but number two, and this is really our first point for today, to remember the joy of private dependence upon God. To private dependence upon God, and you're going to see that in verses 6 through 11. Listen as I read. Oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. By day, Yahweh will command his loving kindness, and by night, his song will be with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do you go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As the shattering of my bones, my adversaries reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise him, the salvation of my presence and my God. So I think it's important as we do this, as we start to think about the context of the psalm and where it guides us in our thinking as we understand these verses, especially verse 7 of what I've just read, which is a very fascinating verse, very profound piece of poetry that resonates with my own soul in a very dramatic way. But to understand what the psalmist is saying here and what he means by what he says, first, we need to understand the place of this writing and why it was that he speaks the way he does about the subjects that he addresses. Again, joy comes before the pain. Before the joy 
also comes pain. Pain and joy, joy and pain act synonymously. And verse 6 tells us once again that in the midway point of this psalm, he sinks back in despair after relieving his heart, after waking up and being joyful. He goes back to listening to himself once again. So he senses, for some reason, the weight of the despair hanging over him like an anchor that's digging him deep, tied to his feet. And he feels the weight of his gloom taking its toll on his soul. So he cries out to God in the anguish of his heart to help. And though he's just preached in verse 6 that he knows that once again he will praise God in the sanctuary like he's done before, immediately he goes back and gets into the quicksand of depression. This is the battle of his mind. This is what it is that he's up against, a wrestling match with his affections. And so what seems to be a moment of clarity, just for a moment, he hangs on to that and quickly he descends back into the cloud of despair and doom. And so as he's praying to God about what he feels is drawing him down again into the dregs once again, he immediately begins to preach to himself. He preaches to himself by drawing upon another memory from his spiritual past. And this memory has to do with his private dependence upon God. He has just celebrated his public devotion to God when he was with everyone, when everyone was looking. He had just lifted his spirits by drawing back to the forefront of his mind that heartwarming imagery of the past participation of service to God's people in the house of God. But now he shifts the focus And he tries to remember a more private aspect of his life. This is an experience that only he knows about. This is an experience that wasn't in front of other people to see. An experience that was experienced in a private place that only the Lord knew of. And he mentions this this private moment of dependence upon God by remembering the places that he had traveled three different locations that took him away from the house of God, places maybe that no one else even knew anything about, a place that was the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and from Mount Mazar. And you see that in the text. Either he has traveled from the lowest sea level to the highest and those points all in between, or else there's a vantage point where he could see all of these three Vantages come together at one, but regardless, in his memory, it helps him combat the depression that is overwhelming him by remembering where it was. Jordan, of course, is the Jordan River, uh, the river, the same river our Lord Jesus was baptized in. That was the river in the valley, if you will. He speaks of the peaks of Hermon. It was a mountain. And then he speaks of a, a lower place actually translated as little one called the Mount Mazar. And so it seems as from the, from the plains to the plateaus to the peaks, when despair comes knocking in at your door, he says, I cause myself to remember my experiences there to draw myself out of the darkness. From the plains to the plateaus to the peaks. One commentator tells us that this area is ancient Deltan near the base of Hermon in the New Testament Caesarea Philippi. I myself have seen pictures of a place where there's waterfalls and streams coming in the foreground and Mount Hermon is in the background. So perhaps this is the vantage point where he finds himself, where he's speaking. Perhaps this is the place where he saw the deer panting for the water that began his writing. We can't be sure. But whatever happened, 
it became an intense moment of encouragement for the psalmist that he could draw from in times of trouble, that picture that he knew privately. And what might it be, this experience, you might ask? Well, the first observation is that it was vastly different from the festivals and from the house of God and all the people that were there. This was a memory that was private. This was a private memory that is explained in the most beautiful, poetic way possible, which I believe has caused a lot of confusion concerning what this meaning is and what it should be. So the psalmist here is speaking of a truth that he doesn't introduce to the reader to reveal without any explanation. He, he says it this way. He just says, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. Do you see it there? Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls, verse 7. Your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. What? Ever he is saying there, and follow this, is connected to a remembrance that he drew upon in relation to being in despair. It's not, listen, it's not an explanation of his despair, but rather it's an explanation of the remembrance. I hope you see that. Whatever this verse means, it is connected to what he remembered in the plains of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and the plateaus of Mazar where the waterfalls are seen and memory that he uses to preach himself is part of that picture to rid himself of despair. So I'm going to explain it to you, but I need you to know before I explain what this means that most commentators, I mean the majority of commentators, see this verse as speaking of the perils that God has put him through. In other words, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls and your breakers and your waves have rolled over me are speaking, they say, of the trials that God had allowed that he speaks of symbolically through the use of waterfalls and of waves. And the reasons that they come to that conclusion, I believe, is because they allow themselves to forget context completely. And again, you know we talk about that all the time. If James was here, I don't know if he's here today. James, this is for you. Well, no, it's for everyone. But uh, because we're talking about context and hermeneutics. So to their credit, the psalmist is known here to shift his thoughts very rapidly as he preaches, as he speaks to us. He doesn't talk about why he's doing what he's doing. He just does it. So to shift away from encouragement in his memory to dread in his memory is possible. Also to their credit, they see these phrases of deep, Deep calls to deep as the same words used in Genesis to call out about the the chaos at creation. And so because of that, they automatically associate these words with the chaos of life, thinking that's what the psalmist is speaking of. And they've also noticed that the phrase, all your breakers and your waves have rolled over me, contain the exact same verbal formulas identical in the second half of Jonah's psalm in chapter 2, verse 4 of Jonah, where he's in the belly of the fish, and they conclude that whatever the psalmist is saying here in Psalm 42, it was also what Jonah was saying in the belly of the fish in his dreaded experience. But still, there's something wrong with interpreting this verse and then deciding that this statement communicates more of a problem in the psalmist's situation than rather a solution to his agony. So please notice that the writer introduces this verse 
as a part of what he remembered to draw himself out of despair. Not what he remembered that drove him deeper into despair, but that brought him out of it. Plus, on a completely subjective level, which is how poetry is basically understood, these words in the context are communicating something that has to be understood as exquisitely beautiful and profound. Deep calls to deep. You, you understand that. But before I tell you how you are to understand it, I want to do another hermeneutics lesson for you right now. And I think this is important. This is, what, this is what I think about. I want you to think about what I think about because we should all think about the same things. Just because words are used in a certain way in some parts of Scripture doesn't mean that they will be used in the exact same way in other parts of Scripture. Do you know that? That's a very important principle to remember. Just because deep is used in a way in Genesis that refers to the chaotic nature of creation doesn't mean that that's going to be the way that word is used elsewhere because context is king. And because context is king and has more influence on how the word is understood than the definition from a dictionary, we have to be considering how that word occurs. So, for instance, if I'm looking at the Grand Canyon and I say out loud, that's deep. It has a very different meaning than if I just listen to John MacArthur preach and I'm going, that's deep. (laughs) Same words, uh, different context and therefore different meaning, okay? That's what I'm trying to convey. So if Jonah used this exact same verbal construction in his psalm, and as well as in Psalm 42, we might conclude that both should match the idea they are communicating. But then you have to remember that the psalms were written 300 years plus before the time of Jonah, And then you realize that Jonah is quoting Psalm 42, and he's bringing it into his context. So commentators will say, I hope you're following this because I I find it fascinating, and I'm just praying you will too. Uh, Commentators will say the way Jonah used this phrase now gives us insight into the original meaning of Psalm 42.7. But on the contrary, it actually just tells us that Jonah saw a connection between what he was going through and Psalm 42, 7. That's all. So if I may be so bold as to say, I believe Jonah used Psalm 42, 7 out of context as he's living in this belly of the fish. And I mean, who can blame him, really? You know, there he is in this belly of the fish, and he's thinking, boy, these words really apply to my situation perfectly, and he memorized it. Uh, So he says it. It's not like he's saying, here in my desperation as I am sinking to the bottom of the sea and this sea creature, I see an exact connection between my plight and the psalmist's plight in Psalm 42. No, I don't think so. No, he's saying that (laughs) those words match how I feel about my life in this very moment. And since he had obviously memorized them as a prophet of God, He adapted them to a situation as he was praying in the moment of his distress. So if my hermeneutics are right, I believe that the meaning of a word or an entire phrase of a verse that shows up elsewhere in Scripture doesn't necessarily determine the meaning of that same word in a different portion of Scripture unless the immediate context proves that, okay? So what does Psalm 42.7 mean? He is saying, because my soul was in despair, O God, I remembered you. I remembered you, O God. 
When did I remember you? I remembered you from the moment when I was in the place at Mount Hermon, when it was visible to me and the glory of your, of your awesomeness and where the Jordan River and the waterfalls existed around Mount Mazar. And it was from that vantage point that I heard the sound of your waterfalls and the deep sounds that roar there and the pouring out. And it called me in the depth of my own soul to a deeper realization about you. The sound of the waterfall, seeing your creation being so distant from your house and where I wanted to be caused me to sense something deep within me that reminded me of you, O God. Your breakers, your waters rushing over the rocks, your waves of water have rolled over me and engulfed me and reminded me of your presence and your dominion over my life. Ray Steadman, a pastor and commentator, says it this way. On that occasion, he could hear the waterfalls of the mountainous region, the thundering cataracts. He became aware of how they seemed to be calling to one another, deep calling to deep. And it reminded him that the deeps in God call out to the deeps in man. And he goes on to say, one of the amazing things about nature is the silent voices that call to one another against vast spaces. The moon calls to the deeps in the sea, raising the tides. Twice a day, the waters rise in tides across the earth because of the moon calling to the ocean. You know how the sun and the rain call to the deeps in a seed, causing it to stir with life and spring up and grow. There are vast differences that call the deeps in wild birds, causing them to wing their way across trackless waters to waste their eggs, to lay their eggs. And there are voices that call to certain fish, sending them across the seas to spawn. He says it's in this way the psalmist is reminded that God also calls to man. There are deeps in God that correspond with deeps in man, and he calls to them. And that is what God is calling to the psalmist to understand what, what is this deep that calls to deep that washes over him in this secluded place away from the house of God? Well, you see it in verse 8. By day, Yahweh will command his loving kindness, and by night, his song will be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. In other words, even when I'm by myself, even when I am no longer with the throng and the masses who love God, even when I'm away from the house of God publicly, when I'm in my most private place, when I'm being slandered by my enemies, I know that my God, I am that I am, commands my destiny. And I know that His love and mercy guides my steps during the day. And I know that the same song I sang before the people of God during the day is the same song that stays with me during the night, for I depend on Him. And that message, that memory of that experience, I will preach to myself over and over again, and I lift myself out of despair because God is not just the God of my public life. He is the God of my private life as well. So I think and I hope that you see the same thing here as you did in the first memory when we went over it last week, and that being you can't remember what you haven't lived. You can't remember what you haven't lived. You, you can't recall those moments of sweet dependency upon God in your life unless He is the God of your life. Not just the God of Sundays. Not just your God when you go camping. 
He, he is your God in the quiet moments of the day. He is your God when the sunlight kisses your face with a warmth that reminds you of his goodness and his grace. He is your God in between sentences with your children that graces you with a glimpse of the depth of the purposes that he has for you that you forgot. He is your God when he comforts you when you run to his word in pain. He is your God when your spouse says that they appreciate you even though that you know that you haven't done anything worth appreciation and they've credited it to you anyway. He's the God that when, he tire, when tires screech outside your house and the neighbors scream and you aren't sure where your family is and you're praying as you open up the front door that your God will prepare you for whatever's next. If you don't know God now, then how do you ever expect to remember him later? This is what you must preach to yourself over and over, but you can only preach what's true. There is a third and last aspect that you can preach to yourself to escape spiritual depression, the last point that the psalmist gives us that can draw us out of despair and doubt. Not only are we to remember the joy of public devotion to God and the joy of private dependence upon God, but now, number three, we're to remember the joy of personal delight in God. Personal delight in God. And we see that in Psalm 43, beginning in verse 1. Give justice to me, O God, and plead my case against an unholy nation. O protect me from the deceitful and unrighteous man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise him, the salvation of my presence and my God. Now, before I get into the nuances of what we have here, let me say that By this time, you've probably noticed, again, that we transitioned away from what is designated in our Bibles as Psalm 42 to Psalm 43. And as I said in the beginning, originally we believed that these two psalms were connected together as one psalm for the reasons that we gave. So with that before us, we now continue with the third truth here that flows out of these mighty psalms, namely that we see that we are to remember the joy of our personal delight in God our personal delight in God, to grab your soul out of despondency, to preach to yourself what is true and not to give in to what is false. He says, remember the joy of your personal delight in God. And I say that because of the phrase that you see the psalmist using in verse 4. To God, my exceeding joy. To God, my exceeding joy. Now, we're going to unpack this verse very carefully for the remainder of our time this morning. And I want you to notice the context. I want you to notice what it is that I'm saying around these words. But before we get into details, I want you to think of this phrase as the first time that you ever have seen it, as if you're going through your quiet time in your devotions. I want you to imagine with me just for a moment as if this is the first time that your eyes have ever rested on these words. 
And I want you to think about what your reaction is to them. To God, my exceeding joy. It is a five-word expression in English that you can just run over with your eyes and, and keep moving in your attempt to kind of finish your word in the day, that particular day. Or is this a phrase that makes you stop dead in your tracks and think and contemplate and marinate on the expression, what does that mean to your life? To God, my exceeding joy. Other translations say it this way, to God, my joy and my delight. To God, the source of all my joy. To God, my greatest joy. God, you are the source of my happiness. To God, to whom my joy finds its source. To God, the joy of my rejoicing. To the God who gives me ecstatic joy. To the God of my joy and gladness. Earlier in Psalm 42.8, we read the psalmist saying an equally powerful lyric. And that one is the title of our all three messages. To the God of my life. To the God of my life. To the God of my exceeding joy. So clearly what is being at the very bottom of the psalmist's heart. This is what is at the very apex of his theology. This is at the very core of his soul. The idea that God that I am praying to, the God that I am reaching out to in the midst of my darkest moment, the God that is the God of my strength when I am weak, verse 2, and the God that is in reality my God, verse 4, the one who formed me and leads me and will not forsake me, this God, the one that is my exceeding joy, is the one that fills all my longings, the one that fills my life with strength. Is that the God that you know? Now stay with me here. Just stay with me. If your heart this morning is weighed down in sin, if your heart is diving deeper and deeper into a sense of confusion and conflict and sadness, if your heart is torn because how others around you that you thought were your friends have now shoved themselves and revealed themselves to showing that they're alienated from you, that they're deceitful and unrighteous and perhaps even prove themselves to be your enemy, then it's my contention that's what's going to draw your spirit out of depression and back out of despair is remembering quickly that the joy of public devotion to God, the private dependence on God, but it's the joy of remembering your personal delight in God where your whole life sinks or swims. This is where you, you make or break. Unless God is the God of your life, unless God is the God of your exceeding joy, then all the public worship in the world, all of the public worship is an external piece of theater, and you're just performing. Unless the God is the God of your life and the exceeding joy of your soul, then all the private worship that you can do is nothing more than just a practice of new age spirituality designed to make you feel better because you're a religious person. So when the dark days come and the heavy sea billows roll, if the God of your salvation is not your personal delight, there is no antidote for you. There is no way for you to get your heavy heart out of the doldrums that it's in. There's no cure for your wayward soul because at the very bottom of the entire existence must be a real overwhelming assurance that the God of the Scriptures is the God that soothes your spirit like none other. 
for it's the anchor of this realization that is at the bottom of the psalmist's heart as well. And so we go back over this section of Psalm 43. I want you to hold on to this idea. I want you to hold on that, that this personal delight of God because that's really the heart of the message. That's really the point I've been driving at this entire time. And the heart of the message for every day is hope in God, the delight of my soul, the exceeding delight of my spirit. Now back to the verses we have before us in this last area of remembrance. <laughs> we notice that first... The psalmist describes this plight, and then he describes the accusers. Again, we're in a context, a historical context. Verse 1 tells us that he needs justice. That's what's happening to him is unjust. Put yourself in his position. And instead of making us think that he must be in some kind of legal courtroom that's accused him personally of some offense, he explains that his case, quote-unquote, is against an entire unholy nation. Do you see that? Verse 1, to plead my case against an unholy nation. Unholy nation meaning an entire world of those who don't trust in God. And not a multitude of unbelievers who have sued him in some kind of legal battle, but a, an entire unholy people, an unholy world that he lives in. It could be that he finds himself in exile, which could be very historically true, that he's in an exile. He could be in Babylon. He could be in different places where the entire nation itself is ungodly. He also says there are many in this country that are critics. But regardless, verse 1b, the accusations seem to be coming from a singular, deceitful, unrighteous leader of the multitudes, a singular person. There are those leaders who represent the multitudes against God's people. There are leaders, as you very well know, that are speaking for the people they represent, and so they, they have blasphemous ideas, they have anti-God ideas and rhetoric, and they make the believer, when it, you hear them, fall into despair, thinking that your faith in God is maligned and marginalized in the culture as it is today. It was the same thousands of years ago. Verse 2b tells us that the moment of injustice against the psalmist is so intense to his soul it makes him weep. He is mourning about me. He walks about crushed in his heart. He doesn't even know. He's aimlessly mourning in his own soul because he feels the oppression upon him. He's away from the house of God. We know that. He's alienated from the presence of God that he so lovingly remembers. He's away from the people of God that he loves so well. And so now he feels this profound sense of just weakness and, and despair. And so he cries out in verse 2a, the God of my strength. It also means the God of my safety, the God who makes me strong, the God in whom I feel safe. Help me. There is no doubt, follow me on this, that when the believer is away from worshiping with the people of God, when you're not here, when you're away from worshiping with the people of God, there's an incredible sense of aloneness. There's an incredible sense of living on an island with your enemies and your fellow soldiers have abandoned you. There's this reality that the whole unholy multitudes can oppress the believer in solitude and that hearing these voices cry day and night overwhelm us. It overwhelmed the psalmist. You hear it day in and day out. Your faith is nonsense. Your God is a figment of your imagination. There's no God, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no such thing as morality. 
There's no such thing as certainty. Jesus isn't the only way. Evolution is real. The Bible's full of errors. Your religion is a crutch. You can hear that same blasphemy over the radio waves and the internet and over the fence post in your yard and over the cubicle in your office place. And you hear it so many times that eventually your body just starts to weaken and your voice starts to strain because you're constantly defending your life over and over again. And so your joy starts to dwindle and into a whisper that's so faint, even you can't hear it. And so you start to preach and you preach and you preach to yourself, and you preach the truth. Verse 3, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of my heartache and pain, I know that you, O God, have light and truth. They both belong to you. And so I pray, please send me light and send me truth so it can light me back to you, back to your dwelling places, back to your altar and holy mountain, because there I shall praise you again. Your light in Scripture It can mean the Word of God, Psalm 119, 105. It can mean illumination that comes from God, Psalm 119, 130. It can mean the Lord Himself uh, in Micah 7, 8. It can mean that which overcomes darkness, Psalm 18, 28. Your truth can also refer to Scripture itself or just divine revelation, as well as that which combats the lives of the oppressor. And so why does he want to preach this message and hang on with me? Why does he remind himself that there's such a thing as God and light and truth to begin with? Because he wants to return to the mountain of God. He wants to return to the house of God, the dwelling place. Remember, he's an Old Testament believer, and that's where he believes is the most basic, wonderful, succinct, iconic expression of God's glory is there. And he's a singer of Korah. So of course, he says in verse 4, I can play the lyre again. I can go there and be musical. I can sing the songs to the God of my salvation. I want to be back with the people. And why does he want that? Why would make him make music again? And this is the key. And this is where we're going to camp out for the rest of our time. Again, verse 4, because God is my exceeding joy. God is my exceeding joy. C.S. Lewis, one author who probably wrote about joy of the believer more than any other in his book, Surprised by Joy, he unpacks some thoughts for us. I want to go through them quickly because I think it's just so important that we understand the way to look at joy. Lewis says that the joy he's speaking of is different than what we might think. He says, quote, joy is distinct not only from pleasure in general, but from aesthetic pleasure. It must have the stab, the pain, the inconsolable longing. In other words, according to Lewis, this joy that we read of is more than just this eruption of excitement. It's, it's more than just good feeling. It's, it's true joy, and it has an ache in it, an ache that tells us that something Something we're experiencing reminds us of something that we already know, something maybe that we long for. It's an ache. I I can never explain it any other way, but when my boys were first born, I'll never forget this, and actually when we first got married, honey, I've never felt an ache in my bones. It was not a pain medically. It was an ache that I had. It was an ache that I have felt only since I've been married and since I've had children, And it was a ache that just was indescribable to be anything else but just joy. It it was so wonderful, it hurt. It hurt 
it hurt like God was telling me something was about to happen and it was wonderful and I couldn't cry enough, I couldn't yell enough, so I just ached. And he goes on to say, all joy reminds, it's never a possession, it's a desire for something long ago or still farther away. Think about this, this, this longing, this, this joy, it's a reminder, think of this, it's a reminder that I can't quite grasp. I can't quite put my finger on what this feeling is. It surprises me. It it seems to be something that I'm familiar with, yet I've never experienced. And then Lewis makes this observation about joy. He says it's a byproduct. It's the existence presupposes that you desire not it, but something other. In other words, he's saying joy is not about joy. Joy is not about feeling the essence of joy itself. Joy is always connected to something else other than you. It's, it's other-oriented. I've heard it explained as homesickness for a place I've never been. Homesickness for a place that I want to go to, but I've never been. So joy points to something more. And then he says, when we are lost in the woods, the sight of a signpost is a great matter. He who first sees it says, look, and the whole party gathers round and stares. But when we found the road and we're passing signpost every few miles, we don't stop and stare anymore. He's saying, until we get to that place, wherever that joy is pointing, it just seems to be that, a way shower, a guide that leads us. And then once we're there, we're no longer concerned what is the source of the joy because we know. And the reason I bring this view of joy before you is because I believe that we all have experienced some deep-seated sense of rightness before. I, I believe we've all felt the ache of love for our spouse before, and we've all felt the ache of love for our children. But the psalmist says that he wants God to be considered exceeding joy, our exceeding joy. What does that mean? And just listen, that God is the greatest joy among all other joys that there was a joy that he knew that exceeded all the other joys, that this joy exceeded the joy of leading multitudes in worship, that this joy exceeded the joy of being with God's people on the holy mountain, that this joy exceeded the joy of the music that he sang about God, that it even exceeded the joy of his salvation because the joy was the source and the fountain of all other joys because the exceeding joy was God himself. And what does that mean to us? First, listen to this. That means that there are other joys. For God to be the exceeding joy means by just logic that there must be other joys. It stands to reason that God has to be an exceeding joy, that there's other joys. And those joys can be legitimate and sanctified and righteous, and they can also be unholy and unrighteous and unsanctified joys. You have the joy of serving ministry, right? I know you do. The joy of being useful to the body of Christ, correct? And, and you serve, and someone slips you a note to tell you how you helped them, and you showed them the love of Christ and what you did, and and you just pour yourself into that service because you have so much joy because of that. And even if no one notices on the car ride home afterwards, you have this little tingle of joy because you're just so thankful that you were able to exercise your giftedness in the church. Listen, listen, God is to exceed that joy. God is to be your exceeding joy. You all have the joy of family, right? You all have the joy of seeing, like I did maybe on Friday night, my son played the last game of high school football in his career, and though we lost, I watched team members, oh, it was horrible, (laughs) 
one by one walk up to my son and my son and hug him and hug him because he'd been such a leader and such a friend and they were all so tight that it just brought joy to me what I saw and I know you have grandchildren and and the laughter and the tender moments of them just saying I love you grandpa I love you grandma that gives you joy and and the joy that you feel when you look back sometimes at the pictures of your life sometimes in black and white sometimes in color and those embarrassing clips of diapers and birthday parties and and crying faces and family portraits and they just they just bring you joy but the psalmist says that God's is exceeding joy more than that more than those joys. You, you have a joy for pleasure, right? For food and fun and entertainment, correct? You feel joy when the steak is cooked just right. And, and, with, right? and you have a joy at the end of a book when the ending is so gratifying and it just fills you with joy. And when you hung around the shoulder, somebody gives you a hug, whether it be a child or, or, or a friend, and you're just filled with joy or when your pet dog or cat just kind of plops down beside you and rubs your, their head against your leg and, and you win a game or you pass a test. And that praise means so much. Your joy for God has to exceed that. It has to be more. And you have joy also, folks, listen to this, for getting even when someone crosses you. And you have joy when you are right and tell other people that they were wrong. And you have joy in indulging in those sins that are against God and bring pleasure to your body, correct? But God is to exceed that as well. And your marriage should not exceed be your exceeding joy and your children should not be your exceeding joy and your love of yesteryear and days gone by should not be your most exceeding joy my friend your lust and your sins and your worldliness should not be your exceeding joy either because on that day when the storm clouds come rushing over you and the tears come flowing from you, and the multitude of burdens that you wrestle with lay heavy upon you, not your spouse, not your children, not your hobbies, not your secret pleasures are going to be able to lift a finger to help your soul out of the pit of despair, for God has designed his children only to rescue and be rescued by him. So the only thought that can reach out and grab you by the hand, the only thing that you can preach to yourself and pull you out of the quicksand of your sin and sadness is the remembrance of the exceeding joy of the face of the Son of God as he hung on the cross and that he shed his own blood, not because of what he had done, because of what you had done, and that when he cried, it is finished, all of heaven and earth cried with joy in the darkest moment of human history, over the assurance of your salvation because your salvation now was sealed tight forever in eternity. And then you can sing the song of the redeemed. And then you can join the multitudes in praising the king and you can preach yourself truth and light in the midst of the darkest hour because God himself is the prayer and the exceeding joy of your life. That's what was in the psalmist's heart. And that's the lesson of Psalm 42 and 43. Father, thank you for this time together. And thank you for the fact that even in the midst of sometimes the darkest gloom that we know that our souls will be wrestling, that we do talk to ourselves in the midst of the most incredible times. 
that we speak to ourselves sometimes lies instead of preaching to ourselves truth, that we hear a cacophony of voices crying out for a distraction to make us believe that we are not yours, that we do not belong to the Son of God, that our sin has so grossly bypassed any kind of assurance that we should just throw our hands up and sink into the the pond of despair and dread. And yet we know by your word that that fight will come and that the voices are real and that we can preach to ourselves truths concerning our past involvement in the church and the joys of serving you, that we can remember those moments of sweet communion with you that no one in the world knows about except us, and that the fact that you are our exceeding joy above all other joys, the God of our life is the God that we pray to. That can pull us up and wring us out and place us back upon your holy hill so that we can praise you as you desire us to do. Thank you for this time, and thank you for this lesson. In Christ's name, amen.